0: You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. My name is Michael McFall, and I'm the director of FSI. To talk about all kinds of issues related to cybersecurity, we couldn't ask for a better guest than Amy Ziegart, who currently is the co-director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation, as well as a senior fellow here at FSI. She also co-directs a program on cybersecurity between CSAC and the Hoover Institution, where she's also a senior fellow. Amy, great to have you here.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: So you just wrote this great piece. In fact, I think I helped in the margins uh, about American Grand Strategy, uh, written with your colleague and my colleague, Stephen Krasner, called Pragmatic Engagement Amidst Global Uncertainty, Three Major Challenges, put out by the Hoover Institution. Um, my guess is, had you written this a decade ago, the word cybersecurity would not have appeared. Is that true, or does it go back that far, it's, and how has it changed over the time? It's
1: absolutely true. In fact, if you look at intelligence threat assessments, which, as you know, are issued every year by the Director of National Intelligence, if we go back 10 years, just to 2007, the word cyber does not appear in that threat assessment at all. one time doesn't appear wow. at all so and it took five years from then so just in 2012 for cyber to vault to the top of the threat list so this is a very new threat and a fast changing one
0: fast changing for sure it, it affects our elections it affects our security it affects individuals right uh we're all a part of this how give us a scope give, give us some scoping like how How do we understand how big a threat it is? Is this like, is it like, you know, marginal stuff with the right uh, interactions we can contain? Or is it more like nuclear weapons? Or is it even bigger than that?
1: I think you've put your finger on a huge challenge, Mike, which is that it feels like cyber is everywhere and yet at the same time insignificant. So when I talk about cyber threats and I ask people in the audience, how many of you have had to get a new credit card in the past right. year? Almost every hand goes up.
0: Right. That's if, cyber, right? Right. Yes. And if
1: you ask people who have had security clearances like you, how many of you were implicated in the theft of information from the Office of Personnel Management, lots of hands go yes. up. Yes.
0: My hand's going up right now, if you can't see it. <laughs> You
1: probably not... have the trifecta you're probably in the anthem hack too. So we have cyber fatigue. We read about it all the time. And so it's hard for everyone, I think, to get their arms around how serious is this threat and who are the bad actors. So I try to simplify the universe a little bit into four different categories of threats. Great.
0: Simplify for us. Perfect. Right.
1: So there are four major cyber threats, spying, stealing, disrupting, and destroying.
0: Okay. Go through so, those. That's good so, so cyber
1: espionage. We think about um, the ability to gather thousands and millions of pages of documents at speeds that you could never imagine before. Someone like an Edward Snowden being able to take out thousands and thousands of pages of documents, whereas yes. before, if someone wanted to take documents, you'd have to smuggle them out in your pants, right, from a secured facility.
0: Exactly. Can I just say as a footnote? Uh, I was the US ambassador when he showed up in Moscow and he really ruined my summer back Mr. Snowden oh keep going keep he going. ruined a lot he, more he, than he, that yes he did he did
1: <laughs> so the the threat of cyber espionage at speeds and scale that we have never seen before is a very real one so right. that OPM breach that I mentioned the theft of all that security clearance information that's a counterintelligence treasure trove as you know right so big challenges with the spine. Stealing, the massive theft of intellectual property, generation-skipping advantages now given to foreign companies, the theft of American intellectual property in particular. That's a big issue for companies in all different kinds of industries. And if you think that our power in the world is really driven by our economic might more than our sheer military power today, that should be of concern to every American. Uh So that's the stealing Okay. Disrupting we hear a lot about what happens if the grid goes down, what happens if banks can't process your transaction. Uh-huh. So the ability of state and non-state actors to really wreak havoc on our society through uh, affecting critical infrastructure like the grid, like financial services, is a great worry in uh-huh. the government. Okay, And then there's the destroying. And I, I lump here election hacking and interference because it really is threatening to destroy the fabric of our society and our fundamental pillars of democracy. But we also think about destruction in the kinetic or defense sort of the yeah. You probably do
0: more than most, but yeah, say more about that. Yeah. So
1: if you imagine that there is a conflict escalating and suddenly our aircraft carriers can't actually function on GPS, they don't know where they can go or where they are, or you imagine that unmanned systems are now flying into our own citizens or our own targets because they've been hacked and they've now been redirected somewhere else, Or imagine that our nuclear command and control is actually not as stable or secure as we thought it was. And we don't know whether a foreign adversary actually has taken over our command and control of our nuclear arsenals. That's the kind of destruction in a kind of a military capacity that keeps me awake at night.
0: Those are pretty scary scenarios you just outlined. (laughs) I'm glad you're thinking about them, but those are hard ones, right?
1: They're really hard. And part of the challenge is these are these are threat vectors that we haven't ever had to deal with before. I think part of the challenge is it seems so abstract Yes, that something that comes through a keyboard can really do that kind of damage. It's hard for us to imagine. Exactly, Uh, And I think part of it is we can't quite figure out who are the bad guys we should fear the most.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you about that. So uh, in your list, in the back of my mind, given my background, I was thinking of the Russian government. But uh, it's not just the Russian government, right? It's other governments, and it's also non-state actors, right? Or is it? Or, or is there—there there must be a hierarchy, of course, of who can do what and, and certain— Governments can do certain things and other can, uh, actors cannot? Or is that the wrong way to think about it? So
1: I think there's a debate in the field about how worried we should be about, as I call them, the Cheeto-eating teen hackers. Cheeto-eating
0: right? teen hackers? That's nice. <laughs> right?
1: So we read a lot in the press about how some teenager has managed to hack into name your secured system. At least from my perspective, we should be worrying about the threat actors that you're worried about. Uh-huh. So, the, And I, I call them the big four. Right? It's okay. Russia, number one. Okay. China, Iran, and North Korea. And from the folks that I talked to in the government, the most improved bad actor award goes, is tied between the Iranians and the North Koreans. Interesting. So states have the capabilities and they have the motive right. to actually execute some pretty serious damage through cyberspace. right. Other actors may have the capabilities, maybe not the motives. Some actors have the motive, like terrorist groups, not so much the capabilities.
0: Got it. And what about in the category where maybe it's because you're thinking about uh, national security issues, it doesn't fall in those four categories. But the, the the criminals that are out there, say, for ransomware, that that jam up your computer and you have to pay them to unlock it. Who are they and, and how worried should we be about that? Or will we eventually solve that with better cybersecurity?
1: So there's a whole ecosystem, as you point out, of... You know, criminal actors. And then there are also hackers that just want to break into your stuff because they can, right? Or because they want to show off to their friends. So there's a whole witch's brew of bad actors that are trying to steal your information, get your personal data, do all sorts of things with it. From a national security standpoint, I worry less about that. Right. But it's not to say as an individual, I don't worry about it. I worry about it a lot.
0: Right. Well, that gets me to my next question. Uh, listening to these uh, scenarios, man, you have to think about a lot of bad scenarios, don't you, in your business? Um, I mean, some of them are obvious that it's the state, but I've uh, a big question that I always have is who is responsible for providing this security, right? So, you know, if uh, if the Chinese roll into San Francisco Bay or the Russians come up through the border on Mexico... We expect the state to respond. We expect the government to defend our security in that domain. Um, Somebody breaks into my house, interestingly, a little more in the fuzzy world. Maybe, I'm not going to tell you, but maybe I have a private security group that helps me with that or a, a program that I've bought to help with security. But if somebody breaches my physical property I pick up the phone and I call 911. That's a government number. I expect the government to show up. When I have unfortunately had to experience uh, cyber actors interested in me, you can guess which ones, uh, both in the government and um, even now. Uh, who do we call? We call the IT guy. Why is it that in some domains we expect the government to provide that, but in other domains we expect either the company, or the cybersecurity product that we buy, or the individual, right? There's this phrase cyber hygiene that, well, you got hacked. Well, that's your fault because you weren't careful. How do you wrestle with that kind of philosophical question of who's to be in charge of cybersecurity?
1: I think it's a Big conundrum for the government because, as you point out, we think in political science terms. We always talk about the state has the legitimate monopoly uh, use of force, for right. example, to protect us. So right. we expect the police to be able to carry firearms to protect us. We expect the military to protect us, and we grant them that license to use force if necessary. Right. But that doesn't work in cyberspace. Uh huh. And so it's why a, not? It's a very I don't know why not. It's a great question. And it's very muddy terrain. Part of the problem I I think is that. Uh, 85% of our critical infrastructure isn't owned or operated by the government. Well,
0: that's a good point. Right. So even
1: if the government wanted to be the sole provider of cyber defense, it couldn't. Part of it is that tech companies, uh, we know them well, they're in our neighborhood like Google and Facebook and Amazon, uh, are very powerful actors in this space. Uh They control, Google has 90% of search uh, market share in the world. Um, Facebook has more users than any nation has citizens. Uh, And so corporations have just evolved to play a very large role in mediating this battlefield of cyberspace. And they're grappling with how to do that, too. So part of it's just happenstance of evolution. Part of it is ownership. And part of it is the norms that have developed around who's responsible for what.
0: Is there a worry about that we don't want the – just so I understand, that we don't want the government to be – uh, watching everything, including our our email systems? Is that part of it as well, that norm?
1: I think there's been a... As you know, Mike, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about intelligence agencies yes. and how they evolve. And when the Central Intelligence Agency was created in 1947... Uh, one of the great fears was that Harry Truman didn't want an American Gestapo. That's how he put it. And, I didn't
0: know he used that phrase. And wow. that
1: and that's why the CIA was explicitly forbidden from having domestic intelligence powers. That's uh-huh. why though that function was given to the FBI. Right. So I think there is a longstanding deep suspicion of the government's uh capacity to surveil American citizens. Uh And we've seen this with the development of oversight mechanisms and the outcries about privacy after the Snowden revelations. That's a real feeling. It's a really deep-seated norm, I think, in American society, and rightly so.
0: So that that's part of our cultural tradition, historical traditions that we have that maybe other countries might not have. I mean, I don't think the Russians, the government, would care as much,
1: or even the British. So is that right? Right. So the, one of the one British lawmaker came several years ago to the U.S. and he told me something I never forgot. He said. You know, in the U.K., we have security cameras on every street corner and, and university students were asking for more because they feel like they're more secure if there are more huh. security cameras. And he said, can you imagine walking into an American university yeah. and having students requesting the government to put more cameras to watch what they're doing? It's a very big difference, even in a country like the U.K. that shares so many uh, cultural traits as we have.
0: That's interesting. Well, let me ask a, a s- Similar but slightly different question about uh, if the government shouldn't be responsible for security, uh, company security, individual security in the cyber world. Should they do more regulation? Uh, Should they create some standards? And I'm I'm thinking about uh, the Equifax breach, right, and what happened there, and who's liable for that how do individual people that suffered, and you mentioned the the attack on the U.S. government, of which I was one of those, how do we, uh, you know, what rights should we have vis-a-vis those that didn't provide that security to us? Um, and the analogy I always think about is uh, the car industry, which, of course, several decades ago, there were no seatbelts or no airbags. You just got in your car and You did what you did and you faced the consequences. But the norms and then later regulations and laws changed over time. And we decided that people needed to have seatbelts on and you couldn't drive a car without a seatbelt. And then you couldn't make a car without airbags. And my father is one of these people. I grew up in Montana and Montana is a pretty, you know, libertarian kind of place. Uh, for years, he refused to put on that stupid seatbelt because that's, that's my choice. I get to do what I want. But, but our laws and our society, and I would say our norms change that actually to drive a car, these are things the car needs to provide you and then help you be safe. I don't get that feeling like when I walk into my bank, I don't know what their cybersecurity is. I don't get that feeling when I walk into my medical, where I get have my medical care. Do I know how they're securing? Do I have any right to know that? And is the government obligated to help them provide that kind of security or not?
1: I think we're feeling our way to a new world where the government may not be able to single-handedly provide defense in cyberspace but has to take a leadership role in solving that market failure problem. Okay. So you mentioned the auto industry. It was in some ways a market failure problem. How do you optimize profits at the same time providing safety for passengers? And regulation was one way to try to find that middle ground. Right now, it's pretty much the Wild West in cybersecurity. So we face this bizarre world where you can uh, post ads, political ads on Facebook in this last election round without saying who was responsible but you can put ads on TV and you're and you're regulated yeah. about uh, that identifying crazy? that I mean, so it's a little crazy yeah. and part of it is that Laws always lag behind technology. Right. And in this case, that's a dangerous lag. Right. And so, in a whole host of areas, whether it's election, uh, political advertising, or whether it's protection of your bank account, uh, the laws uh, are lagging behind. I'm not, that's not to say I'm in favor of lots and lots of regulation, but there need to be guardrails in Uh place that protect, in in particular, critical functions of our society that make people feel that they can trust the internet also. Because one of the great perils in this landscape is that eventually people will be so fearful of the internet that the whole value of innovation and globalization of internet communications will decrease.
0: Right. So we have a collective interest uh, to to address that, right? Yeah. So you mentioned the Russians. Let's talk about the Russians a little bit. We can't talk about cybersecurity and elections and hacking without bringing in the Russians. Um, I think we generally know what what happened in terms of uh, 2016. Um, in broad strokes, we know that they stole data and helped to, to publicize it. Um, but do we... Well, maybe we don't know. Let me, let's me let come back to that. Before we, I jump to prescriptions, tell me what you think they did to the best of our knowledge so far in these, these domains.
1: So I think it's a moving target, and...
0: That's why I hesitated. Like, I don't fi- want to get ahead of my skis here. We're
1: finding out more every day. In, in some strange way, the part that's gotten the most publicity is the least dangerous part, right? The hacking and releasing of emails from the DNC and other campaign-related sites. Is it problematic? Yes. Is it the most serious threat? No. The most serious threat is the massive campaign that predates the, the election and is continuing now to deceive to deceive individuals and groups, the American public. There was a report today in McClatchy about Russian information operations targeting U.S. military.
0: Troops. Yeah, I saw that. So Amazing. So
1: we're just looking at a massive deception operation operating in all levels of American society. And the Russians are here. It's not like they went away after no, the election. Exactly. They're still in our networks. They're still in our systems. They're still sowing distrust in our democratic institutions and sowing dissent among our society. So I, I, I'm i most concerned about that element of the I think the 2016 election in some ways was a canary in the coal mine.
0: Right. So that leads inevitably, as we're closing down here, to the the, the very famous Russian question, uh, what is to be done? I mean, how do we deal with the... the? And let's just focus on Russia for a, a while, both in this domain that you just described, but also in those earlier domains of, of you know, threat star infrastructure, kind of more kinetic kinds of things. What's your... Your 10 point plan or three point plan for how to deal with this, how to respond effectively?
1: Boy, I wish I had a magic answer okay. to that question, but I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you my all of the above approach, Good. which would at least get well, us that... better than where we are. Great. Um, in the land of the blind, the one I man is king. Right? Okay. So the first step is defense. Right. So many of our systems are just painfully vulnerable to everyday hackers. Right. So it doesn't take a lot of sophistication even for the Russians to get into a lot of systems.
0: And when you say our, you mean government as well as non-governmental. Government as well as non-government. So think
1: about your member of Congress running for re-election. What's the cyber hygiene of their campaign staff?
0: Yeah, good point. Right. I mean,
1: cyber hygiene is a real thing and most people are really bad at it.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So we can harden our defenses, make it make it a little more costly for the bad guys to get in. Okay. That's number one. Number one. Number two, deterrence. I'm more skeptical about the ability to deter uh, nefarious cyber activity than others are, mostly because we we don't just need to attribute those attacks; we need to attribute them quickly and if you can't attribute quickly it's awfully hard to punish and dissuade a bad actor from doing it again so we right. need, so i'm a little less optimistic about deterrence okay we also need education so uh, policymakers tell us that they need much greater understanding about technology, about organizations, about how to think about cyber challenges. Right. So that's a big challenge for us as a, at Stanford. As
0: a place uh, of education. Is right.
1: education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we also need to think about where can we cooperate? Is this, for example, a strategic opening in cyberspace between the U.S. and China? China sure doesn't like domestic interference in their right. politics either. Right? Are there opportunities for the U.S. and the Chinese, for example, to agree on codes of conduct to preserve the financial sector? Right. Of which we both countries have a major interest. Uh-huh. So I think there are opportunities to move forward. It's not all defense. It's not all bad guys that we can make progress in areas of mutual cooperation at the same time.
0: Interesting. That sounds like a great list to start with. Uh, that fourth category, of course, reminds me of the evolution that we had with nuclear weapons with the Russians. Initially, we didn't understand the technology. And then later, we figured out how to negotiate about it. And until lately, anyway, we even took some weapons out of the system, right, Um, because we thought it was in our mutual interest. So that's optimism. That's good to think about. Uh, But the last thing I wanted to end on is education. we are at Stanford University. That is our core mission. Uh, Amy, for those of you who don't know, runs a cyber boot camp here that is incredibly popular with our staffers in the U.S. Congress. I once had somebody hand me a card and said, could you put in a good word for me with Professor Zegart to let me in the program? Um, so that's something you're already doing. But you're also trying to do more here on campus uh, to educate people Uh, to know policy and the technology, right? Say a little bit about, it It says in my notes, you're doing, does Google need a foreign policy? I thought it was, does Facebook need a foreign policy?
1: Or are you doing both? We're doing both. Oh,
0: excellent. Well, tell us about that course and just what you think needs to be taught in order to help our world be safer.
1: So this is a new course that I'm teaching with Matt Spence, uh, who used to be in the Defense Department and is now uh, at a venture capital firm here in the Valley. And a
0: former student of mine.
1: And a former student of yours. I should have led with that. (laughs) And uh, and the idea is we want to explore the role of corporations in this landscape. Got it. So whether it's counterterrorism, or surveillance and privacy. Think about YouTube taking down terrorist videos. Who makes those decisions? Right. What happens if the US intelligence community says, leave that recruitment video up because we want to see where it goes and who follows it, but Google for other reasons or YouTube for other reasons says we want to take it down? Right. What is the role of corporations in this landscape? How new is this problem? Because corporations have played outsized roles in international security for centuries. Yes. And how do we deal with contending perspectives? So one of the key things that we want students to get from this course is to ask sharp questions, but there aren't good answers. Uh So we want them to grapple with guest speakers from the U.S. government as well as from industry to hear directly alternative points of view so we can wrestle with these issues together.
0: I hope I can take that course, and I hope our listeners can find information about it, even if they can't take the course. Well, maybe some of them can. Uh, Amy, thanks for joining us today. I remember very vividly when I got back from the government in 2014, I came back to Stanford uh, and you were kind of briefing me on your your cybersecurity program. And I thought, this sounds important. Um, I obviously had dealt with cybersecurity uh, when I was in the government. um, But boy, were you ahead of the curve in getting us on the map as the place to think about these issues because, like you said earlier, back a few years ago, not many people were thinking about it. Now everyone is. The real mission is to think about it strategically, think about it in a policy way, And we are so happy that you're here at FSI with us and so happy that you joined us for World Class today.
1: I am so happy to be here. And let me just say, I hope in the future we're put out of business that cyber challenges actually aren't so serious as they are today. That's my hope for the future. Okay,
0: Fingers crossed, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter, at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.